0: Castren, the whiskey podcast, brought to you by myself, Torin, and my brother and co-host, Ronan. Follow us on Instagram at Castren Pod or on Twitter at Castren Pod. Enjoy the show. Slash. Yes, yeah, so we're joined today by uh, Rob Arnold, Doctor Rob Arnold, uh, author of My Favorite Whiskey Book. Uh, the Terroir of Whiskey: A Distiller's Journey into the Flavor of Place. Uh, Rob is joining us today from Fort Worth, Texas. Is it? I'm actually in
1: Dallas, so close to Fort Worth. Right.
0: Okay. Close enough. where are you originally yeah. from?
1: Louisville, Kentucky. Right. Okay. okay so, so I'm, I'm the, the one that I'm like the only bourbon distiller probably that grew up in Kentucky and then moved to Texas and started making bourbon there, right. or at least I'm one, I'm one of the few, I don't know of any others, but most people that grew up in Kentucky and then, and end up to, uh, making bourbon usually do that in Kentucky. So it's a little unique to do it in Texas. If you're from Kentucky.
0: And how did you get into making bourbon then?
1: Um, so I, I grew up around the industry, uh, at least to an extent, my uncle, grandfather, great uncles were all in the bourbon industry. And um, so I knew about it growing up. It wasn't something that I thought I was gonna go into. I actually uh, started pursuing uh, a career in medical research. Um, Did a undergrad in microbiology and then came to Texas to go to the University of Texas and um, do a PhD in biochemistry, studying drug discovery. But during my research, um, I learned a lot of techniques around microbiology, around distillation, and um the purpose was not to make whiskey of course but a lot of the same principles apply and at the same time I started making beer at home and maybe at that point also started to distill some of that beer into whiskey um maybe not we'll never know but uh (laughs) I um I don't know at that point man I just got enamored by the craft and the just the intersection of science and creativity and uh, I mean, you can call it art, you can call it whatever you want, but this really cool intersection of um, you, using science, but in a very creative way to create this product that everyone would you know people drink and enjoy, and it, um, you know it's kind of a true the truest form of alchemy in a, in a certain way, and, and that all of that tied to my family connections to the industry and learning stories as I started investigating what they had what they had done in the industry and it just felt like the right path. And so I left uh, that first PhD program early with the master's degree to join TX Whiskey um, or the Firestone Robertson Distillery and our brand is TX Whiskey um, back in 2011 as the first employee. So it, um, you know, I I did that for 10 years. I, I recently resigned from TX Whiskey simply to pursue other other adventures in the industry and just kind of move on. Um but um it was an amazing experience along the way I finally did pick up a PhD. Uh this time you know the second time around it was a PhD in plant breeding and uh I used a lot of basically my research was all around whiskey terroir. So it's a pretty fun project pretty fun way to get a PhD.
0: So it sounds like your PhD in your book uh, were interlinked somewhat. Yeah, I mean,
1: no, I mean, no hiding. It. I mean, a lot of, a lot of our, I mean, obviously in the book, it's it's framed more as a popular science, uh, even though there are, there are some chapters that are very technical, um, for better or worse, but they're there. But even at that level, they're, it's still framed in a more popular science um, approach. Whereas, you know, my dissertation and our and our peer review our, you know, the, the research that we published in peer review journals, were, those were written in a very different manner, but at, at the base level, the science was explained in both places, the dissertation and in the book, and, um, you know, the, the things that we discovered about terroir in the in, in whiskey are explained in both places as well. Now, in the book, I get to have a lot of fun talking about the adventures we went on too and unfortunately my dissertation committee didn't seem to think that was very practical or necessary for a PhD but you know whatever it is that uh um both both you know the book worked out and the PhD worked out.
0: Look can you tell us a bit about the book I mean I've read your book um it was yeah, the most uh, enjoyable whiskey book I appreciate that yeah it was, yeah. It, it was really you. enjoyable I did I thought it was I mean I've done my undergrad I've done my master's there, yeah. was, a, there was a lot of reference to kind of academic literature in the book uh, there was a lot of to kind of put it in layman's terms there was a lot of sciencey bits yeah <laughs> Um, there was a lot of literature on wine as well and I know that's uh-huh. because there is so much more literature on wine than there is on whiskey it's kind of uh there's loads on wine there was a lot of kind of chemistry there's a lot of biology but it was also really written in an extremely kind of engaging and kind of down to earth and also uh, friendly kind of manner but for the people who haven't read your book um could you tell them what it was about and also let them know yeah uh can i give a explanation of what terroir is i know that's a i know that's a yeah. kind of open-ended question but uh yeah, if you I can do you. your best
1: yeah i need you to go on amazon and put that review there by the way <laughs> i need <that. laughs> or you put it somewhere online um but the uh the basis for the book started really you know 2014 is probably when the the very first kind of events happened that led me to writing and doing a phd in whiskey terroir and i was uh we were making whiskey making bourbon in texas um and to make our bourbon whiskey we were sourcing texas corn and texas wheat from a a grain supplier that was local um but it was a commodity grain broker essentially is what they were and While they might've been able to tell me, yeah, this corn comes from Texas and this wheat comes from Texas, they could not tell me what farm in the millions of acres of farmland in Texas it came from um, or what varieties they were grown from. And it's because there's no way to do that because it's commodity grain. And the whole nature of that system is uh, a buyer will purchase grain from dozens and hundreds of farms and blend it together. So you have a commodified consistent product that is Uh, you know, it's fungible and can be traded. And there's reasons why it works that way. Um, For certain markets, it makes a lot of sense. But for whiskey, it's about as polar opposite compared to how winemakers pursue grape selection as you can get. And so that, as I understood more and more about how the grains we were sourcing came to us and the type of details we knew about them, which were super shallow, um, you know, knowing that the test weight is this and the moisture level is this, doesn't mean a damn thing about the flavor, right? Um, it's important for the commodity market. It's not important for whiskey in t- the context of flavor. So I, I looked, I saw that and then learned more about the wine industry. And, you know, a winemaker would never be okay with such little detail about their grapes. I mean, they want to know everything they can about them, especially the variety and where it came from what vineyard grew this, what, what, uh, American viticultural area in the U S and what AVA is it from, is it from Napa, is it from Yonkville or is it from Sonoma and what variety that they working with. And that started to just really, really resonate. And I thought, okay, well, if I'm ever going to know where the grain came from exactly and have any sort of control over the variety, I need to find a farmer. I can't buy from the commodity market. And so I, was lucky enough to identify and become really good friends with a farmer who was about 45 minutes south of our distillery. Uh, his name's John Sawyer. He's a fourth generation Texas farmer, operates about a 4,000 acre farm in a uh, in, near Hillsboro, Texas in Hill County. So again, not very far from where we were in Fort Worth. And um, working with him started to really explore the impact of flavor in the context of his land, his farm, as well as the varieties he was growing for us and exploring different grains that weren't typically grown in Texas. We, we did a lot of work to bring rye and barley to Texas through working with John. Um, those two grain types are not very common in Texas because it's so hot down here. So um, that's, that's kind of what got me started on this, this whole adventure of terroir. But then it was also I started learning more about it and also started to understand there was this massive debate maybe, maybe not massive, but there was a very, among the people that actually care about this, there was a very heated debate about whether or not the grain variety or where it came from could actually impact the flavor of whiskey. And, uh, that was interesting to me. I thought, well, anecdotally, I, I, I can say at least in our, in our situation, it definitely mattered because the new make bourbon and the aged bourbon we, were um we made using this grain from Sawyer farms was different than the grain we when we bought from the commodity market um so i thought okay well why is there this debate and there were other distillers out there same story anecdotally we all knew something was going on here that terroir mattered Mm -hmm. there's just no science around it you know
0: um is a there's a lot there's no science around it, and
1: whiskey is there a science around it? Right. And wine, ton of it in wine, and it's yeah. still debated there, and it's something that you really can't, you can't. It's, it's not a, it's never going to be a scientific law. It's never going to be a theory. It's just something that you can debate all day long. Um, but the wine industry's done a lot of work to try to understand what different aspects of climate or great a great variety or agronomic technique, how those impact flavor. And usually it's very specific to a certain place or a certain vineyard or a certain winery, but still they explore it and they can answer questions around it. And that allows the winemaker to then tailor their process accordingly. Um, there was just nothing in the whiskey industry that did that. So that was really, that realization is what really started me down the PhD path and the book path. So. I reached out to Texas A and M, who, re- in a ridiculous way, have has like one of the only um, distance PhD programs that exists for science, for you know, for a research based PhD, where I could actually maintain my full time job as master distiller at TX Whiskey and do this PhD. And there happened to be a professor there, Seth Murray, who was a corn breeder, a maize breeder. Who had a big interest in whiskey and beer and was kind of thinking the same thing? Why does nobody care about the variety of corn when it comes to making whiskey? So he took me on. Um, and I, you know, it, at that point, it was okay, well, I'm going to pursue the science, understand the science, try to build some sort of foundation for what whiskey terroir is. But I know no one's going to read, read my dissertation. <laughs> I know the industry, for the most part, people aren't going to go read a 100 page document. Um, full of very technical science writing so I thought well maybe I can try to write a popular science book it sort of accompanies this this research and the, the dissertation.
0: Great I can That's I can, the... I, can uh, I, I didn't real I didn't read every single word of your dissertation but I did, uh, <laughs> I did download it and I did read a good bit of it yeah uh, but it was uh, it was much more fun
1: kind of reading the book I think yeah, and you're but you're like you know you're a whiskey nerd like me. That stuff's fun for us. From even yeah. even a lot of whiskey enthusiasts, it's just too nerdy. So I, uh, um, yeah, I mean, the the book was my attempt to create a a more approachable version of 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 the dissertation, along with sort of that travel aspect to really dig into that human element of, you know, the pursuit of terroir is really what will push this, you know, this idea forward, um, both from a flavor standpoint and from a sustainability standpoint and that human element of, you know, the, the farmer and the distiller, um, is so important. And, um, I guess that, you know, you asked like, what is terroir? And it's, you know, to me, it's just the intertwining of nature and nurture. So nature being what you're born with, your DNA, your your blueprint, your genetic blueprint, um, you know, whether it's humans or dogs or cheese or corn or, or wheat, whatever it is, uh, we all have a DNA that we have a DNA, you know, a genome, a makeup of DNA our genetic code, which at the basal level dictates what our traits can be. And then the environment plays a role in how that DNA is read and ultimately is responsible for what our traits actually are. And so the intertwining of the variety of grain or the grape variety, whatever it is, depending on what you're talking about, but the the grain variety and how it intertwines with the environment, the farm, and then how the flavor trait is actually expressed. That's terroir. So in the science world, we call this the gene by environment interaction. And it's, it's a, again, like that's a technical way to say nature and nurture, nature versus nurture. That's all it is. So it's a great romantic synonym, but it's nothing more than that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What I'd like to touch on, and you mentioned earlier on that there, there is a debate around terroir. There's a debate in wine where it's kind of widely accepted, but there is still a debate. In whiskey, there's a lot of people and a lot of major companies beginning with D and ending in Agio. Um, <laughs> that, that say terroir is it's uh, it's rubbish, it doesn't matter because it goes it goes through such uh, sorry the, the the grain goes into a wash or, or, or a, a, a kind of high strength beer and then it goes through a uh, destructive of destructive uh, process that we all know called distillation and there's no way yeah. that you can you would be able to taste the kind of intricacies of the specific farm in the final product. Now I, I personally. Um, believe in terroir i've tasted some uh, good waterford whiskeys i i think at Mm. least it's a very interesting topic to uh, investigate but to the people who are maybe a wee bit on the fence a wee bit cautious you would you would say like why move away from commodity grain it makes good um if not very good great um Scotch whiskey, and I'm sure it makes a great kind of American bourbon, American rye, and whiskey yeah. with an e as well. So, yeah, it does. Why, yeah, why why move away from commodity and go towards uh, kind of localized or single farm origin? as Waterford call it?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. And in the book, I I say this on many occasions because I want it to be very clear that I do not think there's anything inherently wrong with using commodity grain when it comes to making very delicious whiskey almost every single bottle of whiskey on the shelf right now was made with commodity grain um and we make amazing whiskey with commodity grain and the diversity of flavor that exists in whiskey right now is certainly not what I would say is restricted I mean there's lots of flavor out there to explore um that said We don't know what we're missing. We don't know what we've lost through modern plant breeding and and, and industrial agriculture and commodity grain. It wasn't up until the late 1880s, um, early 1900s, that we even had seed companies, much less large scale ones. Um, So everything up to that point was what we would call an heirloom grain today. And unlike modern varieties of grain that have been bred by the industry for one purpose, and that purpose is yield, Heirloom grains were selected for many reasons and often for flavor, um, commodity grain, modern grain varieties, flavor has not been a part of the breeding process, uh, for over a hundred years. And that's because the markets that buy the most commodity grain just simply don't care about flavor, the feed market, the fuel market, fuel ethanol, the white flour market, you know? So you have this, uh, and through a uh, genetic drift at the tight end on aspect of, um, of Orwinian evolution. We we have a very narrow genetic base uh, in our modern varieties. And so even if the flavor is not duller compared to heirlooms, which it is, um, it's also less diverse than what exists in heirlooms. And and back to that dull comment, we found, and it hasn't been proven in grain, but anecdotally, it's pretty easy to tell. And um, we've proven it in other crops. Tomatoes, they've done a lot of work to show that modern tomato high yielding varieties have lost a lot of the genetics that are tuned for flavor and heirlooms. So we, we, we've definitely lost some flavor diversity along the way. And distilleries, it wasn't even up until the you know, prohibition or even shortly after. I mean, distilleries a lot of times, especially at least here in the US, we're still buying local from farms. Um, And you still would have had a a large proportion of that flavorful heirloom varieties being grown throughout the U S and I think similar story um, across the globe. So while we make a, we make delicious whiskey right now, I, I do think there's a lot of old chemistry that we've lost Mm -hmm. that will, as we rediscover it. um, And you're seeing this now, you're seeing some amazing whiskeys being produced using not just old methods, but some of these heirloom varieties um, kind of tapping back into the way things used to be done, which can lead to bad whiskey. Don't get me wrong, but you, we are discovering some pretty amazing flavors along the way. Um, I, I mean, I think the one that's probably most well known right now in the industry is what the Leopold brothers have done with that three chamber rye whiskey um, using an heirloom rye variety. So at least here in the U S. So right. I think that's important, but why not explore flavor diversity in whiskey and what what are we missing potentially I don't see any reason what there's no reason to not pursue that um but maybe go beyond flavor for a second commodity grain is almost always tied to a a form of industrial agriculture that's just not sustainable and as whiskey makers as a as someone you know we don't buy a lot of grain in hindsight compared to the rest of the you know the rest of the grain buyers of the globe I mean in a lot of ways, uh, on the barley side, it's a little bit different because malting barley is the majority of, of that species. And we obviously buy a lot of malting barley. But especially on the corn and wheat side, distillers like a drop in the bucket compared to what's being bought for fuel and feed and white flour. Um, but I'd argue there's nothing, there's no product that exists um, made from grain that has a platform to the extent that whiskey and beer do. Um, nothing's more romantic. Nothing's more, um, you know, sought after. There's no, you know, we have sommeliers in the industry. I mean, there's, you know, you just, you have this, this uh, very enthusiastic, passionate, um, you know, following around, around beer and whiskey and um, a platform to talk about the fact that we should find ways to break away from the industrial Agriculture model and embrace more sustainable approaches to farming. Um, and as long as we're using commodity grain, um, you know, it we have to look at we have to. I think at least take a good hard look at ourselves and say, are we really doing the best we can to to facilitate that message? And I, I think that you know, there's a marketing potential there. You know, you, you really tie yourself back to the farm and. Get to know the farmer and tell their story and how they cultivate their land and then and, and, and nurture their land and and how you're not tarnishing the soil and depleting topsoil or encouraging erosion. I think I think there's a story there too to where you can you know do the right thing for the environment, explore new and forgotten flavors, but at the same time you have a marketing uh angle to this that can sell bottles.
0: So yeah. I think you're right. And I think, uh, I don't know if in America you're aware, but in Glasgow right now, we have COP26. Um, Your president was just over visiting Joe Biden. He was staying just outside Edinburgh and he was visiting the conference in uh, Glasgow. And it's a a climate crisis conference with the leaders of uh, countries around the world, really. Um, Yeah. And it's... it's, it is a goal and it, well, it's set by the SWA that Dutch whisky industry will be net zero by, uh, I think it's 2040, which is 10 years ahead of uh, the UK goal 2050. It is a business and it's almost like the easiest way to convince businesses to start being more environmentally friendly when it comes to uh, a growing aspect in the whiskey industry. It's maybe saying, you know, there's a marketing marketing Mm -hmm. side to this and you can really be, maybe not the first, but you can be, change a couple of things. You can be one of the first to be doing like these kind of, well, you speak in your book about biodynamic farming, organic farming. Organic barley has been carried out. It was carried out, I think, by Springbank and Camelton first where I come from Camelton, so I'll always refer everything back to Springbank whiskey. Yeah, uh, it's been tried by several other distilleries and it's just never really hit off. It's maybe 10, 15, 20 years kind of ahead of ahead of schedule, really. Yeah. But uh yeah, it's obviously something that growers and is well growers will grow what they need to satisfy buyers, I guess, won't they? and um, so it's yeah it's a kind of industry change that's needed especially in in scotland at least
1: yeah it's it's not up to and i agree with you it's it shouldn't fall to the grower we should be
0: no because the, grower, I the mean, growers
1: we, we need to re, yeah, we need to reward them yeah. by paying them fairly yeah to provide us a quality product that is sustainable it's well, not regenerative
0: farmers whether it be milk which is what another commodity product if you think about it is mm, milk and definitely. grain they get paid bottom dollar i mean there's a joke in scotland that you'll know, like you'll never see a farmer without a brand new car and all that but yeah. they always plead to poverty that's what we say but they do get paid like absolutely nothing like they get kind of squeezed and it's usually by supermarkets or it will mm-hmm. be grain elevators as you call them in America is in our massive malt houses in, in the UK. They will get squeezed until they're just getting paid like pennies on the pound, basically.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, to, to go back to your book, uh, kind of one of the most fascinating, interesting parts of it for me was the propagating or the like kind isolating of the the yeast strain that you use yeah, yeah. for
1: <laughs> at uh, TX Whiskey. Um, how, how did you go about that? Uh, so luckily my, the first PhD that I dropped out of, um, a lot of my background was in microbiology for that degree, uh, especially in isolating marine bacteria from ocean sediment. And while that might sound nothing like whiskey yeast isolation, (laughs) microbes are microbes and the techniques are pretty conserved across the different species and, and environmental, you know, homes, um, and the techniques you would utilize in the lab to, to isolate them. Um, so I kind of had the background. At least I thought I had enough of a background to do it. And then in my what my job interview when I was interviewing with Troy Robertson and Larry Firestone, the two proprietors for uh, for TX Whiskey, they, they they're you know they're like me. They're no longer with the company, but they you know the three of us were the original crew. And during my interview, um, they asked if I could isolate a wild yeast from somewhere in Texas, because if you go to Kentucky, uh, this is actually a pretty distinct difference between Kentucky uh, and Tennessee and Scotland is that most of the people, most of the old, the heritage brands, most of the the, old, the longstanding distilleries in Kentucky and Tennessee have proprietary yeast strains that their founders or somebody isolated uh, from, you know, from the environment somewhere near the distillery usually. Um, A lot of times that was before Prohibition, sometimes after Prohibition, Um, but uh, each one has their own unique strain, um, or at least a lot of them do. Which is is totally different from
0: Scottish distillers who mostly use or historically use the same distiller's yeast, every single distillery used it, and it was yeah, literally just for um, alcohol creation, basically.
1: Yeah, and yeah was, um, and it's, I think the industry is starting to shift some in Scotland because there is just so much diversity you can tap into based on your yeast strain. Um, so uh, anyways, they asked me if I could and I wanted a job, so I said sure, um, and, and I spent like the first yeah classic job interview just uh can you do this
0: yeah of course yeah fake it till you make it i'm surprised you didn't have it on your cv already
1: that's where you yeah yeah. (laughs) (laughs) but uh i spent about six months on this project and the way it worked is i i went to a, a ranch 40 minutes or so from our distillery and took samples of nuts and fruits and seeds and soil samples and bark samples uh Texas Christian University, TCU, gave me some lab space and uh, uh, took each one of those samples of the nut, you know, nuts and fruits and seeds and all that and put each sample into its own individual test tube. That would essentially encourage the growth of alcohol tolerant yeast. And um, from there was able to um, isolate by transferring to auger plates after the initial growth in the liquid. You know, could, I, I could see bubbles. I could see fermentation. I couldn't see the microbes, obviously. But you can sh- then transfer it onto an auger plate, which is, you know, like hard jello with nutrients. And then a bunch of colonies start to grow of different types of microbes. And then you can kind of visually tell which ones might be yeast, and then uh, purify those and then use DNA sequencing to determine which ones are the actual species that you're looking for. And in our case, we're making whiskey or ales or, or wine, we're typically looking for Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which is the Latin name for ale yeast, baker's yeast, whiskey yeast, wine yeast. Um, and so from all that, we, we ended up with like a 100 different types of yeast that were purified on their own auger plates. But then we used DNA sequencing to narrow it down to about 10 that were actually Saccharomyces cerevisiae. And then we just did a, a round, rounds of small scale fermentations and, and further selections and, and distillations and eventually picked one based on its ability to thrive in a bourbon mash, but also based on its uh, aromas both in the, you know, in the beer and in the new make, um, and, or the, the, the flavors that it produced in the beer and the new make. And it happened to be that the one that we picked came from the pecan nut on the ranch and pecans, the state tree of Texas. So I always say it's like the biggest marketing bullshit story ever, <laughs> but it's just the way it happens. Um, it wasn't like we went out searching for pecan yeast, uh, but it sure as hell wasn't like a bad, <laughs> you know, it wasn't a back coincidence or, um, but yeah, I mean, it, I think we were the, we don't, I think we were the first whiskey distillery, at least in the U S to isolate and utilize a wild yeast to make whiskey since Jim Beam did it right after prohibition here in the U S um, and it's a very unique strain. It gives TX bourbon and the, the TX hasn't released this yet, but a, they have a straight rye coming out. It gives both whiskeys a very distinct cinnamon, allspice and dark fruit profile. Um, so the, the blended whiskey that you're drinking doesn't actually use that yeast. So you wouldn't taste that in the blended whiskey, <laughs> but in uh, and, and the straight bourbon and the straight rides coming out, it does. And um, yeah, now I will say to me, terroir is really just dealing with the grain. I think terroir is something that is tied to agriculture. It's a phenomenon that occurs on the farm and then you can, you can pursue and express the flavors from terroir in your whiskey based on the grains that you use. I think the better word when you're trying to describe how everything comes together, the grain, the yeast, the barrel, the, you know, the the passions and techniques of the distiller. To me, that's provenance, the provenance of the whiskey. And so terroir is just an aspect of provenance. But to me, uh, yeast kind of falls outside the purview of, of terroir because it's not a part of agriculture. Same with the oak trees. Doesn't mean that where they come from and their genetics don't matter for flavor. They certainly do. It's just a different uh, different phenomenon that we're talking about. Um, but that might be an uphill battle. I just need to give up on. <laughs> because uh, in, in a lot of ways, maybe just forget the difference and just say terroir all across the board. <laughs> might be easier. But uh, oh, the, the provenance is what
0: I look for in whiskey. Uh, Mm -hmm. I grew up in a town called Cameltown on the west coast of Scotland, and Providence oozes through their whiskey. Uh, They they try to do everything on site. I mean, Cameltown on the west coast of Scotland, just like Isla, isn't very good for growing barley. But they do what they can. They buy food Mm for local um, barley growers, which there isn't many. But my question about provenance is also kind of relates back to the name of your book, provenance and the flavour of place. Do these things go hand in hand? Uh, And something I've seen, but I kind of also want to have your thoughts on it is we've seen kind of mass production whiskey. There's still mass production whiskey, of course, in the last since i started drinking you've seen a lot of move towards the craft industry whether it be in beer whether it be in whiskey and also kind of gin although obviously it's a bit different but now do you think it's moving from craft to provenance and do you think the next step after provenance will be terroir it's, it's um it's yeah big, yeah big jumps there but that's the kind of way i think it's heading
1: yeah and I mean, I agree and the, I mean, you almost by default, you get some form of provenance just based on the site of maturation. Um, but then by pulling each of the different parts together, uh, if you're, if you're truly trying to capture a sense of place, if you're truly trying to capture, um, provenance, then you create something that you can't, make anywhere else and and it um well it's and it's and it's uh like we talked about it's also just as much you know what's the kind of personality of the distiller in that place and how that re- influence what they create i mean you know isla has pete and it doesn't mean you have to use Pete, but obviously that is a personality of isla that is uh, captured in their whiskies is the use of peat and the malting process. So I think that we will continue to see, uh, you know, less conservation of flavor and more diversity of flavor among whiskey styles because of the, the importance that is being placed on making sure that your whiskey embodies where you come from. And I think terroir is just, a very critical part of that process. If your grain doesn't embody the place that you're, where you are, if it doesn't, um, you know, then how can you even, you're missing such a critical part of provenance, you know? So that's, I think that in the end, terroir is going to be this integral part that will be more and more accepted by the industry that will allow us to, to really elevate the style in general both in terms of diversity of flavor, but also truly capturing that, that specific place that you distill that that liquid. And I think the wine industry has done a great job with this. And um, it doesn't mean that the whiskey or that the wine produced in Napa is better than the one produced in Sonoma or better than the one produced in Bordeaux or wherever. It just means that you can't find it anywhere else. And that's fun. That there's nothing that that's a great aspect of the industry. If we can, if we can move more and more towards that, I mean, obviously bourbon doesn't taste anything like a single malt from Speyside and you you can't replicate a bourbon in Scotland and we can't replicate a Speyside Scotch here in the U S but um, you know, it, can we, create bourbon in texas that truly can't be made in kentucky or you know a rye whiskey in pennsylvania that's just so distinct that you can't make it anywhere else and that's the kind of stuff that i think that we're moving more and more towards part of your book that
0: i kind of really enjoyed and a major part of your book is the chemical roadmap Um, Mm and what i kind of found really interesting about that is how many different flavor compounds are the exact same, and I'm following this up because you've said you can't make a space yeah. whiskey in uh, an American bourbon distillery, but the flavor compounds within these drinks are extremely similar. Like The yeah. same compounds. Usually the same. same, yeah. Yeah, they're yeah. the same. What is the subtle differences? Is it just different levels of the compounds, or is it, Yeah. why are they so similar, but yet again, so different?
1: Yeah. You're, you're dealing with concentration differences and that's, what's driving the the nuances that make whiskeys and wines and everything else taste different. I mean, it's not even just that the flavor compounds and whiskeys are pretty similar across all styles. I mean, the flavor compounds of beer and wine and whiskey are like, there's, they're just, there's so much overlap. Um, a part of that is because we all use the same yeast or a very close derivative of that. And, Um, They all produce very similar byproducts Um, and the ones that are most important for flavor are typically produced across all three styles, wine, whiskey, and beer. So um, that's one reason is the fact that we all have the same yeast more or less um, at a very high level. Uh, Different strains will definitely create nuances, but you're dealing with concentration differences during the byproduct formation, not unique compound necessarily. Unique compounds do exist. Don't get me wrong, but the but then that same thing applies to the the fact that grains and grapes are both the fruit of their respective plant. And while in a culinary way they don't taste similar or look similar at the botanical level at the chemical level they're quite similar. And so you know um Carotenoids are in grapes and grains, and they break down into important flavor compounds that are terpenes. Uh, lignin is present in both grapes and grains, and they break down into volatile phenols. Uh, fatty acids break, you know, are um, degraded into aldehydes. Again, these are—it's not that there's only aldehydes in grain, not in grapes. You know, so you you just have a lot of of overlap in the the chemical makeup of, of the raw ingredient a lot of overlap in the yeast, and then you have a lot of overlap in the oak barrel if it's used. You know, It'll overlap in the sense that the chemistry is not different enough that you're gonna have these wildly unique compounds that are only found in this one whiskey from this one place. What you're gonna have though are concentration differences and the way that those compounds interact together, the synergistic effects, um, and which ones are elevated or not elevated. I mean. Like volatile phenols are extremely elevated in rye whiskeys and in heated scotch single malts, uh, less elevated in bourbon, just as an example. So um, less elevated in a, in a Speyside or a Highland or a Campbelltown. So, you know, you've got, you, again, you've got the same flavor compounds more or less. You just have these unique concentration differences. Um, and, you know, the more that we, pursue terroir pursue provenance. the more that you're going to have concentration you know the more you have these compounds put together in a way that's just so unique to that one place you can't replicate it anywhere else could you engineer a whiskey not you personally but
0: i mean yeah uh, theoretically, could you take all these different compounds yeah uh, add them together why. in the specific yeah. um way or even more simply, could you take a whiskey, separate all the compounds, put them back together exactly the way they were, would it taste the same? Or could you remove one um, thing? Could you or should you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't mean, uh, yeah. uh, There's always talk of, what is it, CRISPR or something
1: it's called? There's always talk of something going on. Um, yeah. Could you do a um, whiskey? I mean, we can, through... Are a couple different techniques using gas chromatography mass spectrometry and then this technique called olfactometry where we actually are us, using olfactometers where we actually integrate an aroma based analysis into gc or just or gc mass spec you know, chromatography and mass spectrometry um, we can do a really good job at identifying the 25 to 50 most important flavor compounds in that particular whiskey or wine or whatever it is uh, out of hundreds, you know? So can we identify the most important ones? Yes. Can we even identify the ones that are technically below their odor threshold, but still play a role in flavor through synergistic interactions? Yeah, we can even do that. But we still cannot build up a whiskey from scratch that truly, truly mimics the original. And that's probably because we were dealing with some very, very complicated interactions among compounds that we just, on the surface, can't believe they play a role in flavor. But they actually do, whether it's suppressing or accentuating other flavor compounds or, or whatever it is. and. Um, can we explore this further and probably crack the code one day i guess but man i mean some things just need to some things just don't need to be over science i mean part of the romantic aspect of this is that it is the intersection of art and science and you know i i hate i mean i'll be honest i don't like any of this rapid maturation stuff not that i don't think it's impossible or that i or that i think it might not work i just um, you know, that's one of the most romantic parts of this process. Is a barrel sleeps soundly for four, five, ten, twenty years. That's great. That's really cool. You're capturing history. Uh, I don't want to make a whiskey in a week. That's boring. So rapid maturation
0: uh, is that referring to these kind of experimental warehouses that have been
1: built and. Is it Kentucky mm. or is it? Yeah, no, not so much that. It's the you know putting new make into a tank with oak staves and then yeah we'll applying play sound play waves play and heat maceration. and uh, yeah. yeah stuff, like that. and trying to basically encourage esterification reactions, yeah. trying to encourage. Um, the production of acetals and other things that happen during the long slow maturation process I, I facilitate extraction from oak very quickly i mean you can do these things and it can make something that tastes like an aged whiskey i just it's not right some yeah. things are some things are better left alone i don't, I don't think I, I don't think that's ever going to
0: hit off in scotland nobody wants infrared or bluetooth matured whiskey we, no. we we're
1: okay waiting a while uh for it. yeah that's kind of kind of where i am if uh if you know if you have the intelligence level to figure out how to make a 25 year old scotch in a week maybe go cure cancer or something
0: <laughs> can you tell us about your trip to scotland
1: yeah it was uh, great. Part of um,
0: part of the book i think it was called the, the church of scotch whiskey was the name of the chapter yeah um great chapter i thought but it'll be better coming from
1: you <laughs> um yeah my uh, my wife Leah was actually with me the whole time we were over in Ireland and Scotland doing the uh, research for the book and so we flew out of Dublin um, we uh, this is actually right before porover Ricard bought TX whiskey so I got to go hang out with Brian Nation who was the master distiller at Jameson at the time and uh run around um run around island for a bit but then we flew out of Dublin and uh, into Glasgow and then took a little improp plane to Isla um, and we landed and I've never driven on the left side of the road before. And uh, the guy that gave me the key sure didn't seem concerned about it, but I, I was, And um, <laughs> but um, you know, we hopped in the car and uh, started our Isla adventure and uh, we, we visited Brook Lottie. That's, you know, they're Lotties, in a lot of ways, the, kind of the original terroir-centric whiskey maker, at least in, you know, in modern times, or at least in the 20th, 21st century, uh, or whether one of them, you know, there's, there's others, but they were surely one of the bigger ones to champion, the idea, and um, they put us up in one of their houses, and we got to spend a couple of days with the team, you know, seeing the distillery, obviously, but more importantly, visiting their farmers. Andrew Jones is one of their of pioneering farmers on Isla who's finding ways to grow barley there both spring and winter barley when people told him he was crazy um and you know the first the first field that we stopped at it was a field of rye it wasn't even barley you know that's mm-hmm. Andrew was growing a field of rye for some of their experimental products so I mean I got to see kind of the pursuit of terroir in fullest form um, and I saw it in other places too. I saw it in Ireland and in New York and Kentucky and Texas where I visited other distilleries. But yeah, just to see all of that on this island was, uh, you know, special, special. And then, you know, when I, when, we, when we were there, you know, the reason I named to chapter that is because a lot like when I, I feel the same Kentucky when I'm especially driving through the bluegrass where the horse country and bourbon country kind of meets, but there's just this this reverence for bourbon. Um, And I felt the same thing on Isla. There's, it's just, I mean, you know, I'm sure the locals joke about it. They go drink Corona over, you know, peated scotch and stuff like that. I mean, we do the same thing in Kentucky. We're like, yeah, yeah. 15 year old bourbon, whatever. It's great. But, you know, you can tell people are very proud of the fact that they're known for something to the extent that they are. Um, People travel from all over the world. To go visit this island and explore these amazing distilleries, and you just kind of get—that's just the island. Just you, you can sense it throughout the entire island that you just whiskey is held in a certain regard there, and um, and they truly care about where it comes from and the people that make it. I uh, I thought that was awesome. Um, you know, we uh, we you know Jim McEwen, you know the, the distiller that Mark Rainier brought in to revive Bruichladdie. Uh we were just like sitting Lee and I were just sitting at a bar and his first cousin was, you know, ran the bar and owned it at, at one of the oldest bars in Scotland or I forget what I, I forget the details, but anyway, she was like, Yeah, go walk back and you'll see a picture of Jim and you know, Jim's and my grandfather, who was a a, a maltster at um Balmore, I think is where he was. So, you know, it's just small world stuff, connections and just that whole the whole importance of you know the fact that while terroir is certainly about the grain variety it's certainly about where that grain is grown uh so much more about it is the farmer that grows it and the distiller that turns it into whiskey and and if they're not on board with the idea of pursuing something that's truly local it's it's never going to happen so so um funnily enough and
0: this isn't just for Podcast uh, uh, made up lies basically, but I was in that same bar, the Port Askeg yeah. Hotel. Oh, it's yeah. the port, the port bar, and I think it's the it's like the oldest license in Isla or something like that. Yeah, and we uh, we actually had some food. It was me and two pals, and we'd had some food, and then I walked around the corner, and I looked to my right, and there was Jim McCune sitting there. No way. This was literally <laughs> only two two three weeks ago, and I kind of went like. What? Oh wow! and I'd <laughs> had, awesome. We'd had drinks at dinner, and I was like, "You're, you're, you're, you're just <laughs> good." <laughs> and he was, yeah. and he was lovely. And the lady you spoke to, her name's Marion, and I spoke to her, yeah. and we just yeah. had an amazing conversation. Yeah. Um, and I as I was, I mean, I read your book back in January or February. I'm not. Yeah. It came out kind of at the start of the year. I kind of forgot that bit, but as I was preparing for the interview, I was like, "Right, I'll read that." I was like, "I just spoke oh, to that lady two yeah, weeks ago," yeah. <laughs> uh, which is she, and she's very proud of her cousin Jim McCune, and yeah. Jim, Jim McCune is. That's the first time I met him. I'm not going to pretend we're best pals. So I mean, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not, I would. He probably wouldn't recognise me if he's seen me in the street, but he was a lovely guy, and I think that is also what Isla whiskey is about. They've made such great whiskey. And now the locals, the distillers, the distillery managers, they've all had a great uh, employment or even kind of filtering off that. They've had great kind of, they maybe own guest houses or cafes or whatever. So Isla is so accommodating to whiskey enthusiasts, or you were over for kind of work purposes, but you were also probably very excited to try the whiskey and visit oh, yeah. distilleries and very stuff. much and yeah. um, so it's kind of just like the perfect place to to come to and try whiskey and visit all these amazing distilleries um
1: and yeah it was a perfect place to kind of end the the journey and it is the well there's uh, the, the, the the last chapter and the conclusion are both based in on isla and yeah it was just um a special place and um that's crazy <laughs> we're in that same bar and <laughs> with uh where, where their dog they had two dogs when i was there like there was, uh, there was no dogs there, there was no no. Dogs, no, but it's like there the was, husband
0: and husband and wife yeah, and was, man. yeah yeah,
1: yeah. They're, they're two um they had two dogs sitting around the bar when we were there but yeah we uh and that was just random we just pulled off because it started raining and like i hadn't crashed on you know yet luckily and it was still unsteady, you know, very rocky ground for me to drive on the left side of the road. Yeah. Well I'm we're pulling off. I'm not driving in the rain on <laughs> uh, <laughs> I can't call it the wrong side of the road because it's not the wrong side. It's just not it's just the wrong side for me. <laughs>
0: so, uh, uh, yeah. But, uh, I mean on Ayla on Ayla they're, they're very conscientious drivers and everybody waves yeah. at you and you're you you need to watch out for a deer on the road, or you need to watch yeah. out for especially down near the airport, there might be sheep on the road. That's that's yeah. like you slow right down because somehow there's like a herd of sheep just crossing the road and you've just <laughs> you've just got to wait on it. It's um, yeah. it's Perfect. Isla time, that's what I call it. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have attempted driving in like Edinburgh or Glasgow, but know oh, no give it a shot in Isla.
0: So Edinburgh, was... Edinburgh and Glasgow are just um yeah just a maze of one-way streets that are very poorly signed so when you drive down them you get like um, a fixed penalty fine like you drove down this bus lane but you're like if you put a sign up that's four inch by four inch and I'm driving a car how, how am I ever going to see this sign
1: there
0: there are money-making schemes in Glasgow and Edinburgh but they're, they're easy enough to get about especially Edinburgh you've got an, an amazing kind of bus service i don't know if you don't know if you took advantage of that but it was pretty pretty small as well edinburgh
1: yeah we had a great time there too it was a it was a lot of fun and and you know one thing you mentioned this earlier um that certain scottish distilleries are have made very blunt comments that terroir just can't exist and um you know i I won't get into it much because I want people to actually buy the book and read it, I guess, but just remember that while distillation might, because the argument a lot of times is that distillation is just too destructive for any nuances of terroir to exist, and I guess my my point there would be just remember that while distillation might look destructive to a human, it doesn't look that destructive to a chemical flavor compound, and um, you don't destroy matter, you don't destroy these flavor compounds Um, you might manipulate them through distillation and maturation you might concentrate them but you're not going to destroy their basal elements and um and that's uh yeah i'll kind of leave it at that but there are a lot of very important flavor compounds that are derived directly from grain that are impacted directly by terroir that are not destroyed and not even really manipulated through the process and terpenes are a good example of that so um you know you can it's it's an easy debate it's an easy argument to say how in the world could something so manufactured is a, a bad word but you can say it's it's more manufactured than wine which is wrong but let's just you know that's people that's one of the things people will say when they're saying that it can't exist um you know it's it's just simply not true and the science has never supported that and there's multiple peer review published articles now we, we've done one but so has waterford and there's been plenty in beer at this point to, to show that uh, the destruction of terroir through the different processes of mashing fermentation distillation maturation you don't, you don't destroy the nuances of terroir in all ways you actually highlight them you you, you accentuate them. you capture them so a lot of people in
0: Scotland's opinions and a lot of producers in Scotland's opinions would be that the wood type is king. And they say here, cask is king. And the, the final spirit's flavour, whether it be a three-year-old or a 30-year-old, 60 to 80% of that flavour comes from the wood.
1: Is that something you'd agree with? Or I've No, I mean, I've put green neutral spirit vodka into a barrel and i can tell you that it tastes 60 percent like whiskey when it's after it's aged um you know you uh you know i get the point like and it it's right I, I guess there's part of the argument is correct in that new make whiskey tastes very different than aged whiskey uh i totally agree with that the barrel is monumental <laughs> in turning a very raw not you know and not very delicate new make flavor profile into an extremely delicate refined matured whiskey profile but it's not just extraction of flavor compounds from the oak it's also the litany of chemical reactions driven by oxidation during maturation among compounds that were extracted during mashing and that were produced during fermentation Um, so you're, you're essentially what you do during mashing to extract flavors from grain, what you do during fermentation to, um, you know, capture flavor compounds from yeast. Um, your, that's your, that is your building, those are your building blocks for the mature whiskey. Now you need to put that into a barrel so that those flavor compounds can combine and, and uh, through oxidation sometimes break down into softer ones. Um, You want some of those to, uh, when they come together to create beautiful flavors, you know, esterification reactions where you have kind of harsher fatty acids and, and alcohols come together to create these really amazing fruity esters. You know, you want those things to happen, but at the same time, you need to create those starting components from mashing and fermentation. Um, sometimes those starting components, just stay as they are throughout maturation, like with terpenes. And sometimes they're very important precursors to other flavor compounds. But the point is, you know, it's, there's no such thing as this one's more important than that one. It's, it's all one big flavor tapestry. You pull one thread, you're going to shift the entire thing. So you just, it, it, it sounds good. Just like, it sounds good to say that a quarter of the flavors from the grain a quarters from the yeast and 50% from the barrel. I've said that plenty of times. So, um, it sounds good. It's easy. It's a good way for like, you know, it's kind of a good way to explain to the someone new to the, to the spirit, what, where flavor comes from, but they're all just kind of made up numbers that don't mean anything. And in the end, I don't think there is a way to put a percentage to each style. I mean, I guess you could go through like isotope labeling and, and track things and even reactions that occur in, during maturation, understand where they came from and actually Seagram's did a lot of that work back decades ago, but um, at, the, at the same time, trying to put percentages to it is kind of a, to me, it's a, it's an effort that you're never going to really come to a conclusion.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think
1: in terms of what
0: my thought process around it is that, yeah, you know, wood type, it, it probably does have the biggest effect. I mean, nice to work for an independent bottler and Potentially, you could turn bad new make into reasonably alright whiskey if you just mm-hmm. like put it in yeah. very, very good barrels. So yeah, it has a big flavour. I don't agree with a sixty to eighty percent, but you can't really put a percentage on it because it will vary between barrel to barrel, or vary between yeah. new make to new make. You then go to the distillation process. Yeah, obviously it has a massive effect, but as you say, you don't create any new matter in the stills you just, yeah. what, I, what I like to call it, is you refine it, you, you mm-hmm. shape it. Um, it was only more recently, it's looking into a mash tun with a mashman uh, named John. We were watching the grain uh, come into the mash tun, obviously mixing with the the, the water um, as it was coming in, and he turned around to me and said in the most kind of broad Scottish accent, Poetry and motion boil. Poetry and motion, <laughs> and I just thought that that That's is awesome. This is where the magic happens. This is the yeah. the. I mean, you've got the molten floor, but uh, I'm not that interested in that. But you've got the magic happens when that temperature controlled water hits your yeah. po- post milled grain, your grist and it, it hits the mash tun floor. And that's, if you don't get that right, you'll not get anything else right. And if you muck that up, you don't get your end product. It doesn't matter if you distill the exact same way you did before or you put it in the best cast. Yeah, you can mask it with the cast, but you don't have that poetry in motion as it's coming into the mash tun. Um, oh, I love that. Yeah, yeah, that's great. You can use that if you want. But it, yeah, either, I, mean I will. Either, <laughs> it was, it was. I was looking at them and I was like, you don't realise I've just... Heard something from you that I'm going to copy uh, for the rest of my career, <laughs> for the rest of my
1: life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah no, was, was, but isn't it? It's the it's true. I mean, it is true. Like you were saying. I mean, you you really can't. If you screw up any part of the process, you're hard pressed to find a good product on the end of it all. You know, you've you've got to have everything dialed in from your ingredients to your process. You can't if you if you try to. Of skimp on one you know it's gonna it's gonna have effects and it's hard to make up for that somewhere else so I, I do agree with you I mean the cast is probably where you can have some of the biggest influence um if you're if that's your goal with the cask uh it can also play little and you know smaller influence you know that it is about to what the distiller is trying to accomplish if they're very adamant about expressing differences in flavor due to grain varieties or farms um, you can accomplish that you just, maybe your barrel program is gonna not be so aggressive to, um, you know, to potentially negate some of those effects because yeah, there is the, there is this, it, you can definitely cover up stuff. I don't want to pretend that, you know, you can't potentially, um, push a, a flavor compound kind of to the background by, by throwing a bunch of other ones on top of it. That's very possible So. Poetry in motion. I like it.
0: Definitely. Uh, is there any Scottish distilleries or Scottish distillers, more specifically, that you've took inspiration from or, um, yeah, you've maybe st- stolen an idea from or two? Um,
1: <laughs> well, I mean, I... Uh... Well, I mean, terroir from Brooklady. I mean, yeah. I, apart, I brought, from, I brought, apart from the the big one, and, with, uh, I mean, I brought, I definitely brought terroir to TX and looked a lot at Brooklady and others for inspiration for that. Um, I mean, I've always looked up a lot to. I've only met him once, but Dr. Bill Lumpston, Eklund Morangi, and a lot has to do with you know. I've always just kind of gravitated towards wanting to learn from those distillers that have, um, you know. The thorough science backgrounds because that's kind of the, the cloth that I was, I was cut from that cloth, you know. Um, so, uh, just and this is the barrel finishing, you know, pioneering work that was done at Glen Morangy, uh, you know, for sure brought that. Some or at least try to tie some of that back to what we were doing at TX and are still doing. We've got not we anymore, but TX has a great barrel finish program. They've done sherry port and cognac finishes so far and there's plenty others on the horizon there now Ali Ali Ochoa choa or tx's master blender and evan brewer tx's new master distiller are leading the efforts there so um yeah i've always but you know dr jim swan uh you know the late dr jim swan i I never met him but kind of the same deal there i just i'm not sure anything specific that i was able to you know because i just Never got to know him very well, but I, I just the fact that there were people bringing a level of scientific expertise to the craft and elevating the style, you know, in general, that just that idea in general, I always have, um, I've tried to, to do what I can to to follow that same path that these other people have already kind of paved for us. Any Scotch whiskey in particular you're sipping on at the moment? I don't want to ask hard, you. <laughs> hard bag, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I went and bought a bottle the other day. I'm like, I'm not really a a bottle collector, you know, and like my, my bottles don't last very long. Cause I don't, I usually like, I don't have like a hundred bottles in my cabinet. I'll like, I might have a couple on hand at a time and then just kind of drink through them. And then I run out of whiskey and I go buy a few other ones. And I don't really keep, you know, I'm trying to get a collection going, but it it always seems to to be that I'll just kind of stick with the ones I have. And then, I don't get bored with them until they're gone. I go buy something else. So right now I'm on Ardbeg, yeah, and I've got a bottle of Aberlour too. Right, actually going back and forth.
0: So I I would Uh, guess you've got maybe Wee Beastie, Ardbeg Wee Beastie, or is it the the ten and then classic ten, yeah, Yeah, and then you've got you've got a abuna. Uh, I would guess it would be a shame if you didn't have a abuna. Is it Aberlour? Is that the for a 12-year-old? 12-year-old, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So it's slightly yeah. different, but yeah, both yeah. both good whiskeys. You can't go wrong with an Art big 10.
1: Um, yeah.
0: yeah, so it's really, really good juice.
1: Yeah, I was uh sometimes I just the peat head in me comes out and that's all I want is <laughs> is the flavor of a peated scotch. Um, actually right now my bourbon selection is like down to nothing. So I've really had I've been really drinking um scotch and and i've got a bottle of waterford that i bounce to too so maybe probably in a couple of weeks i'll all of a sudden go back on a bourbon kick you know i kind of it's not even it's not you know it's it's just uh, like i said i'm not like really a collector that has a vast assortment of selection at one time it's kind of like oh this is my bourbon week okay this is my scotch week
0: that's a good that's a good way to be that is a very good yeah. way to be um Probably myself and probably a good few of our listeners. I I like to think I'm a collector, but I never get my collection that big. You know, I'm like, oh, it's time to open that. Uh, There's always bottles in reserve. And, but it's always good to kind of get a bottle and say, I'll open it for this. And then I can mind, I got a bottle of um, Long Row Red and I was like, I'll open that for my graduation yeah and then it got to my graduation I was like nah I'm not opening it I then bought two more bottles so I had three bottles of this and I was like am I gonna have to wait until I have a kid or not me personally yeah. but my partner has a kid or I get married and then I was like right it's getting opened I've got yeah. I've got three bottles of this now uh and I joked about it in a previous podcast I said it didn't taste as good as like the first time <laughs> which is yeah. such, such a shame and uh and whiskey that uh, yeah, that it almost it almost tastes whiskey tastes better the longer you leave it uh, and not tasting it uh, yeah. and when you go to taste it it's it's almost got worse. Um, I've got so many more questions, but I think well, I think I've I've asked enough of you. Uh, to be honest, I think you've been a, a great great uh, guest on Cast Strength Meets uh, the other part of a podcast. Where, where can somebody, where can somebody find your book? If somebody's listening to and wants to find your book?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's on the the giant. It is Amazon, which is probably going to be the easiest way to get it. If you have a local bookstore that you like, um, and they, they should be able to order it. I mean, it's, it's published through Columbia university press and they have distribution and representatives in the UK. So, um, but if uh, if you can't get it that way, um, you know you can get it online. There is an Audible version of it or an audiobook version of it. It's on Audible. It's on audiobooks. It's on other auto, um, outlets. And um, actually, uh, you know, you should if you want a, a hard copy, the the hard you know the hard cover is available right now. The paperback is going to come out uh, in the spring of twenty twenty two. So, um, which will be a bit cheaper with a different cover. So.
0: But, okay. um, well i've got yeah. the i can attest to the the hard book yeah it's, yeah um there's nothing like a kind of hard a hardback book and yeah. also yeah it's. i think i bought mine off amazon which probably means you get the least yeah. amount of money possible from it or something is it or is it yeah i
1: don't i don't it, forget that books uh unless you just kind of strike gold writing a book you're not going to ever it's going to be the the, the lowest paying job you ever have so don't, don't worry about the don't worry about the how much money I get aspect right. because it's kind, of, it's kind of irrelevant but um uh, I can give you an unbiased
0: review that it was yeah genuinely the best whiskey book uh, I've I've read and that's not just because he's on the podcast because if it wasn't I wasn't of we wouldn't have had about what five months negotiations to find yeah. out the time to get on the podcast
1: <laughs> yeah well i appreciate it um, it, was a, it was fun to write and, um yeah sorry this took so long but i'm glad we finally got to, to to do it i mean i i like talking about this subject and you equally have a lot of passion about it so it's fun to you know the average person doesn't uh doesn't like to dig into this stuff that much so it's fun to actually get to do it
0: what's next for uh yourself what's next for rob arnold i
1: um i've got you know from leaving pernova card tx whiskey uh, i've got to take a you know cool off period um but i've got some consulting type things on the horizon and that will lead to to something more permanent i have considered for a long time starting my own brand i've considered finding you know getting you know staying in the industry but through in a different outlet than a you know traditional distiller role so um right now it's kind of like i said taking a taking a step back to kind of reevaluate decide how to move forward but it'll it'll be in the industry so um and i'll probably in the next month couple months start to to just go and you know, make that decision to move forward Ronald, thank you very much. Cheers for that. Nice. Yeah, thank you.